Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Lessons for America from Europe's Green Energy Disaster. Please welcome Diana Furchgott Roth, director of the Heritage Foundation's Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming here today. And I want to thank all of our viewers who are watching online. Let me tell you, you all are very important to us also, and we are looking forward to taking your questions via our cell phone um, in just a little while. So. As you know, electricity bills in Europe have doubled this year over the last year. Factories are shutting down, and some energy-intensive European manufacturing is moving to the United States in search of lower energy costs. This is particularly harming low-income individuals who pay a higher share of their income in electricity and motor fuel costs and who work in factories that are closing down. Everyone wants cleaner air, and we need to figure out how to get it without harming the lives of our citizens, particularly those in low-income brackets. We need to realize that energy brings benefits in terms of jobs created and income received. People benefit from car trips, which enable them to go to work in areas not served by public transit, to go to university, to take children on vacations. In other words, there are benefits to energy use, not just costs. Also, moving energy production offshore doesn't reduce global emissions necessarily, because standards in emerging economies are often lower than in Western nations. China is ramping up construction of coal-fired power plants and reducing natural gas use in the United States in favor of more coal production in China may lower emissions at home, but raise them globally. The world will continue to rely on oil, natural gas, coal, and nuclear for many years ahead. I do not see the day when the world's 8 billion people will be able to rely solely on wind and solar. Nuclear power is emissions-free, but if we want to rely on that, we need a lot more power plants. Well, today we are honored to have with us two UK experts, Benny Pizer from the Global Warming Policy Foundation in London is visiting Washington this week. He will discuss what's going on with energy production in the UK. He's the director of the Global Warming Policy Foundation. He has written extensively on domestic and international climate policy. His foundation is a nonpartisan think tank founded by Lord Lawson, Britain's former chancellor, who served in the cabinet of Margaret Thatcher. And the premises of the Global Warming Policy Foundation uh, have been attacked by uh, activist groups so he's certainly very, very well known in the UK. We're also fortunate to have with us today Niall Gardner, the director of the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation, right here on our fifth floor, and a leading authority on Brexit. Before joining Heritage, 
Niall served as a foreign policy aide to Lady Thatcher in her private office in London. He's a prominent expert on US-British relations, US foreign policy, and the transatlantic alliance. He frequently provides analysis of global events for US and international telephone networks. Well, Benny and Niall are each going to speak for eight minutes, and then we're going to take questions. Let's start with Benny. Thanks, Diana, and thanks for, for coming to this event. Um, you mentioned that energy prices have doubled uh, in the last 12 months. Well, in Britain, they have quadrupled. Quadrupled. So um, your energy bill in the UK um, is going to be around 4,000 pounds as of April. It used to be 1,000 pounds, so it's, it's quadrupled, um, which means um, a lot of families, millions of families are struggling and many businesses, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of businesses, particularly small businesses, are struggling to keep going. Um, Europe is in the midst of its worst energy crisis since World War II. Uh, gas prices, just to give you an idea of what we're talking about, are six times higher than in the US, six times higher. So it's no surprise that many energy intensive companies who are still in Europe, most have left anyhow, uh, are uh, moving abroad, um, often going to the US because energy prices here are so much lower. Um, obviously, we're told that the energy crisis mainly due to the uh, war in the Ukraine, but it's essentially a policy-driven crisis uh, in that um, 30 years in Europe, there was this kind of magical thinking about how renewable energy will power the continent and will bring down costs and will turn Europe into a green energy superpower. And also delusions about um, that we can do without conventional energy. At its core, the energy crisis um, is a dogmatic prioritization of renewable energy over any alternative, any cost-effective alternative like like say shale gas or, or nuclear. Um, the problem is clear this winter in particular as um, we've had a, a period of low wind and hardly any sunshine. These so-called dunkelflaut periods occur often in the winter. They can last for a week or so. In that period, hardly any wind energy or solar energy is generated. And you need basically a completely different energy system for your energy demand because we don't have any storage and there is no likelihood of large scale, uh, scale storage. So um, the other problem, of course, is Europe has, instead of you know getting its fingers dirty, outsourced its um, energy supplies to Russia in particular, almost half of, of European conventional energy comes from Russia, and that has incentivized Russia uh, for more aggression in the war in Ukraine. Um, ironically, Europe's current energy system is almost going back to medieval times, which is it's becoming weather dependent. So if the weather is good, there's a lot of wind and a lot of sunshine, you can generate uh, electricity, but if the weather is bad, um, you're basically uh, stuck in a, in a 
crisis, in a cost crisis and an energy crisis. And in any case, the unilateral decarbonization policy in Europe hasn't achieved anything if you look at the global picture because global CO2 emissions continue to rise. They haven't slowed and there is no prospect of them slowing or stopping. So all Europe has done is essentially shifting its manufacturing industry to other parts of the world, importing the products from Asia and saying, look how green we are. But it hasn't actually resulted in any uh, cuts in emission. Lastly, the geopolitical implications of a uh, Europe that is in the process of deindustrialization, um, heavy deindustrialization, a, a continent that is likely to be overtaken by Asia and being relegated essentially to the second league, a aging, declining Europe will have huge geopolitical implications, not least for the US. And that's Thank basically you. the Thank kind you. of key issues. Thank you very much, Benny. Let's, let's move to Niall. Niall, what political effects is this having in the UK and elsewhere? Yeah, thanks uh, very much, uh, Diana. And um, warm welcome to everyone in the audience and also uh, to, I believe, several hundred viewers online as well on both sides of the Atlantic. And um, it, this is a very timely event because the, the energy crisis, uh, I, I think, is so fundamentally um, uh, important on both sides of the Atlantic at this time. It, it's a key top issue for, uh, for electorates uh, in the United Kingdom, across uh, Europe, but also here in the United States. It's a big, it's a big issue with, with very good uh, reason. Um, and as Benny outlined, the scale of the energy crisis in, in Europe is absolutely uh, staggering. And I was just looking at uh, some of the uh, latest figures available here. Um, Europe has spent, I believe, about 700 billion euros on subsidies, actually, to, to keep uh, retail electricity and gas prices lower than what the market uh, dictates. That, that's a staggering uh, figure. Uh, in Europe, according to, uh, to Bloomberg, uh, gas today is seven times more expensive than it was in the 2000 to 2020 period. Electricity is 10 times higher. Uh, and th th these are astonishing uh, figures. It all makes sense. So if you look at the, um, uh, the incredible level of energy dependence previously upon Russia, and according to the Financial Times, in 2021, the EU imported 155 billion cubic meters of natural gas from Russia, accounting for about 45% of EU gas imports and close to 40% of its total gas consumption. Uh, so this gives us an idea of the scale of uh, dependence upon uh, Russian energy supplies. And uh, I have to say that figures such as Angela Merkel, for example, also Emmanuel Macron, uh, many other leaders across Europe are guilty of uh, policies of outright appeasement towards Moscow. And, and are now uh, European countries are paying the price of foolhardy um, appeasement of, of Vladimir Putin and his regime. Uh, and it wasn't that long ago when German officials, for example, were mocking uh, former President Trump when he was warning about the consequences of uh, European dependence upon uh, Russian energy. And we are seeing the reality today. And some experts are saying this is not just a, a six 
to 12-month energy crisis. We're talking about a six to 10-year energy crisis potentially for Europe, even longer with regard to the situation. And um, at the same time, I think that many politicians in Europe are absolutely blind to the, the long-term realities here, are still stuck in an outdated big government mindset, are rejecting uh, free market solutions to what is happening, and not only in continental Europe, but also in the UK as well. Uh, and uh, it, is, it is striking to see uh, the new British government headed by Rishi Sunak really moving away significantly from policies that advance economic freedom. In my view, this is a very destructive approach. The, the raising of, of taxes, uh, a refusal to, to lower uh, corporate uh, tax rates. Uh, I think the, the recent uh, autumn budget uh, put forward by, by Jeremy Hunt was um, a complete step in the wrong direction for the United Kingdom. And the UK uh, government, I think, is making some, some very serious errors here. In fact, Margaret Thatcher, I think, would have been absolutely appalled by the direction in which the, the British Conservative government is moving uh, with regard to uh, raising taxes, undermining economic uh, freedom. Uh, and this is a, a course, I think, towards economic ruin, uh, frankly. And uh, although Liz Truss was only in, in office for, I think, about 44 days or so, uh, shortest-lived uh, prime minister, um, I think her overall ideas with regard to economic regeneration in the UK were the right one. You've got to cut taxes. You have to advance uh, policies that support free enterprise and free markets. You've got to reduce the role of the state. And so Liz Truss's big-picture ideas were absolutely right. Perhaps the presentation, the delivery of them, uh, could have uh, been uh, done in a far more effective way. But uh, Liz Truss was absolutely right to, to say that Britain's economic regeneration must rest upon free market solutions. Which brings me to the energy a big picture in the UK. And uh, the British government is fundamentally committed, of course, to delivering net zero by, by 2050. What is the cost of that going to be? And I was looking at the, the official uh, uh, government uh, figures uh, delivered by uh, the Office of Budget Responsibility. And the net zero strategy will cost actually 1.4 trillion pounds, according to official government statistics. Now, government officials argue that some of that can be offset by various cost-saving measures. But that's the big picture, 1.4 trillion pounds here. This is a staggering amount of money for British taxpayers to, to pay over the course of the next quarter century. Uh, to give you an idea and context of, of that, that figure, the UK defence budget is currently around 50 billion pounds a year. The National Health Service budget is around 135 billion pounds. Net zero, 1.4 trillion pounds, uh, which is um, actually around, I think, 1.7 trillion US, US dollars. So, these are vast amounts of money. Where, where is this all going to come from? It's going to come from the taxpayer through tax rises. And uh, it's an unsustainable position. And needless to say, with good reason, there's a growing campaign for a, a net zero referendum in the United Kingdom. Uh, and a, a recent uh, opinion poll by YouGov showed that 44% uh, of the British public supports holding a referendum. Only 27% are are opposed. When you exclude the don't know figures, 62% of voters support a referendum. Uh, we're talking about such a vast sum of, of public money that there really does need to be 
a robust public debate over this, and in my view, there needs to be a referendum on this, this issue as well for the British public to have, have their say. Uh, and I do think the, uh, the low polling figures for, uh, for the British government at this time, they're, they're trailing Labour by about 20 to 25 percentage points. Um, a lot of that is, is due to the, uh, the, the dire economic outlook at the moment for the UK. Uh, partly this is a result of, of weak need um, uh, border controls, immigration policies, but also uh, I think the, the wrong course on, uh, on energy policies as well, uh, very unpopular with the base of the Conservative Party, and, and this is feeding into the low popularity numbers for, uh, for Rishi Sunak's uh, government. And, and I do think the, the British government needs to rethink the whole green energy uh, agenda. It's not a conservative agenda. In fact, it's a socialist agenda. Uh, and if British voters want socialism, they're going to vote for the Labour Party. Uh, and uh, they're not going to vote for a conservative government that implements socialist uh, policies, which is one of the key uh, messages that, that Margaret Thatcher always, always gave, that uh, um, if you're going to present socialist policies, well, voters are going to vote for the real thing. They're going to vote for the socialists. Uh, so uh, I do urge uh, Rishi Sunak to, uh, to rethink the entire uh, green energy uh, agenda, uh, to adopt a, a tax-cutting strategy as well. Uh, after all, there's nothing worse than putting more uh, money into the hands of big government. Uh, they will waste that money. Uh, and uh, the Conservative government has to implement Conservative policies that advance uh, economic freedom. Just, just one last point. Um, with regard to, to Margaret Thatcher, uh, who I worked for in London for several years, uh, there is a misconception that uh, Lady Thatcher would have supported the kind of green uh, uh, energy policies that we're seeing right now. She would not have supported, in fact, uh, big government uh, solutions. She would have uh, supported free market uh, measures. And uh, I do strongly recommend, uh, if anyone is interested in, in reading Lady Thatcher's views, uh, her final book was Statecraft, published in 2002, where she clearly does outline her, uh, her thinking with regard to climate change matters, global warming, and, and the government response. Uh, and uh, she does point out in Statecraft that um, you know, the, do the doomsters' favorite subject today is climate change. Uh, this has a number of attractions for them. Uh, firstly, the science is extremely obscure, so they cannot easily be proved wrong. Secondly, as we all have ideas about the weather, traditionally the English, on first acquaintance, talk of little else. Third, since clearly no plan to alter climate could be considered on anything but a global scale, it provides a marvelous excuse for worldwide supranational socialism. So she gave a clear warning about the perils of big government socialist uh, policies on the, uh, on, on the global warming uh, climate change energy, energy front. So I, I do encourage all of you to to read Saycraft, to get a clear picture of where Margaret Thatcher clearly stood on these, on these matters. But back to you, Diana. Uh, well, thank you very much to both of you. I have one question myself, and then we're going to open it to the audience. And we also have questions coming in from online, so please continue to send those. I understand that the energy prices for the household have been capped at 2,500 pounds, which is around uh, $3,000 until April. Doesn't this give an incentive to people just to use as much electricity as possible because they know the price is going to be capped at $3,000 or £2,500, because the more they use, it'll still be £2,500 until April. Uh, it's unlikely because already £2,500 is a lot for most families. Um, 
And just to, to, to uh, come back to what Neil was saying about Liz Trust, one of the reasons that she failed utterly, disastrously, was that she presented a completely contradictory policy. On the one hand, she said she wanted to cut taxes. On the other hand, she planned to hand out 100 billion to energy companies, households, businesses to cap the energy price. Mm -hmm. So that you can't do that. You cannot, uh, on the one hand, cut taxes. On the other hand, hand out these huge astronomical sums mm -hmm. to all and sundry. So the problem is that as of April, when the energy price cap will be gone, only uh, perhaps 5 or 10% of the uh, population, the poorest, will uh, remain protected. Most of families will have to then, the, the cost will go up another thousand pounds or so. And for most small businesses, it will essentially kill them because they cannot afford a three or fourfold increase in their energy bills. And the pubs have already said, most pubs will not be able to survive these high energy costs. Mm -hmm. So it will have a devastating effect on not just on the British economy, on the whole of, of Europe. And we haven't seen even the beginning of the crisis because it's being uh, cushioned by these 700 billion handouts to everyone in the whole of Europe. Once that money stops and the print, you know, the, the print machines stop printing money, uh, everything will go belly up. So, right. and I'd, my point is the current generation of politicians are a unable to understand what this energy crisis is what has driven it and are unable to turn it around so i'm afraid it's going to get much worse before it gets better well it's lucky that british beer does not need refrigerating so at least the pubs will be able to be open without putting the beer in the fridge now uh, this event was called lessons for america what lessons Nile, since you live here now and you're at heritage what lessons do you see for america yeah, a great question. I think a number of um, lessons, uh, really. And uh, I think, so the first lesson, I would say, for, for US conservatives who are watching what's happening in, in the UK is that uh, conservative governments that uh, implement uh, big government left-wing policies on issues such as energy, for example, uh, this is not the path to success. And uh, I think that uh, the biggest factor actually in Liz Truss's downfall, uh, frankly, was her, her U-turn actually over uh, the issue of um, the, the top rate uh, of tax. She, she U-turned over promising to, uh, to cut that. And that was the beginning of the end actually for Liz Truss. When conservatives make big concessions to the left, uh, they are going to uh, lose credibility uh, and that's a big lesson, I think, uh, from, from the UK for US, for US conservatives uh, here. Uh, also, uh, I think uh, Liz Truss actually U-turned as well on the fracking issue. She had promised to, mm -hmm. uh, to uh, seriously consider uh, bringing in fracking. Uh, I, she, thought, I, thought she, yeah. I thought that she had it in for a week and then Rishi Sunak went back on it. Yeah, so actually, so the fracking idea actually uh, was was very controversial within the Conservative Party. There was a, a big a big rebellion 
Uh, Rishi Sunak, of course, uh, when he became prime minister, immediately uh, reversed Liz Truss's original uh, pledge over fracking. Uh, and, uh, and I think that, um, you know, Liz Truss sent some mixed messaging over the fracking issue. She sh should have stuck to her guns very, very clearly, 100% on this, on this matter. Uh, and there's a lot of peril for conservative politicians when they decide to, to go back on uh, promises made clearly on the campaign uh, trail. Uh, but also, uh, in terms of another big lesson for, you know, for the United States, it's the issue of energy security, energy independence. And uh, Joe Biden, I think, has uh, implemented some very, very damaging restrictions upon uh, America's energy industry. Uh, and you are seeing the price that Europe is paying for decades of dependence upon Russia and other sources of energy. Uh, and if the United States is not going to be serious about energy independence, it is also going to fall into that, that trap. And I think that Joe Biden, his energy policies have been absolutely catastrophic. Uh, the reversals of the, the Trump era policies with regard to energy independence have been hugely destructive. Uh, and uh, Joe Biden, uh, I think, is, is committed to frankly, some of the same kinds of mistakes that we, we have seen implemented by European governments over the course of the last few decades. And, and this is the path to economic ruin for the United States if he continues to go down this, uh, this, this path. Well, thank you very much, Niall. Why don't we start by taking a question from the audience? I see we have a question over here. If you could stand up, identify yourself, and just ask a question without providing a comment, that would be most helpful. Good morning, J.P. Hogan. To speak to market forces, um, I first have the technical question. Does the grid in England use 220 or 110 like America and did when you went green, do you have that? But the question is, with so much now low voltage and LED, a lot of your houses could go to their own independent storage system. So you mentioned there's no storage system. If you develop a low, a low voltage system where people can have a three-foot windmill on their house, they can have a small solar panel, use present yacht and RV equipment. There's ways to change the whole grid system. It may be 70% of the usage, now it could be low voltage. Yeah. Well, uh, on, on that issue, there's simply not enough storage to get you through the winter, that's for sure. That's the way I mean it's looking forward every Yeah, looking forward, it doesn't work. It, it ju and never mind industry, hospitals, schools, and so on and so on that storage just doesn't exist and is highly unlikely to exist in the next 20, 30 years. So we know that because you know, we've uh, heavily subsidized storage projects, battery storage and so on. We're, we're nowhere close to that. So, but the other issue is that this is part of the problem that we face in Europe. There's so much magical thinking whenever you actually try to pin someone down and say, look, this isn't working. Well, we will find a solution. Just give us five years and enough subsidies and we will find a solution. It's always sometime in the future. It's always depends on, you know, multi-billion handouts and it never delivers. And that is one of the reasons why we're in the mess we are. Um, in terms of, uh, I just wanted to say something, what you mentioned, that kind of divide between conservatives and leftists. On this issue, there is no divide in Europe. 
they are mainly saying the same thing and they have the same philosophy. Just to give you an example, so under Liz Trust, the chancellor was Quasi Quarteng. That was her chancellor. Now, Quasi Quarteng is on record of saying that capitalism is, is uh, at fault for global warming, which is why we need big government to solve the problem of global warming. So he is using exactly the same socialist rhetoric um, because, he, I mean, he was energy secretary and secretary in the department that introduced many of these policies. You know, it's not as if the conservatives have a philosophy on these issues. They are just following what, you know, all other parties are saying in Europe. There is no kind of political divide. There's a political consensus that the only way forward is wind and solar. And it is this kind of dogmatic prioritization of renewables which is causing the problem. Because in the past, whenever we had an energy crisis, we would have diversification. We would just say, okay, energy uh, gas prices are so high, let's divert to other forms like coal. We can't do this anymore. Coal power plants have been closed down or blown up. So there is no diversification. Nuclear energy has been phased down in much of Europe. So there is an energy system that is mainly renewables and gas. And that is the problem. You cannot diversify in times of crisis, which is the normal practice in a kind of functioning. Like your portfolio, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You try to diversify to, to limit the risk. In, on the energy issue, there is no diversification, and that has caused this problem. So the first online question is, will America have to wait for Republican administration, for a Republican administration to learn any energy policy lessons? Well, it does look as though President Biden is not planning on changing his energy policies uh, in the next couple of years we might very well get a series of oversight hearings from the House uh, of Representatives, which is Republican, and that might give some incentives to make some changes. But with the President and uh, the Senate, the President being Democrat, the Senate being 50-50 uh, or 49-50, uh, we'll find out that later today, uh, it doesn't look like there will be any uh, major changes. Let's go to a question over here from Myron Ebel. Thank you. Uh, Myron Ebel, CEI. Uh, I'd like to follow up on uh, this consensus. Uh, Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine has brought forward or precipitated the consequences of Europe and Britain's long-term anti-energy policies. So instead of having them play out over the next few decades, they're all here right now. And my question is, this alternate reality that's been created, uh, everybody seems, all the leadership seems to be sticking to it. Is there some, who is going to stand up and lead? Or wh when is this, this alternate reality consensus going to break up? How is it going to break up? Do you have any clue? There, there is no possible way this can continue, right? I mean, it's, oh, yes, it, there is. <laughs> but, but I mean, so, how can I, it continue with prices yes, continuing well, to go up so high? That, that, Look, there, there is the following problem. Um, we are, it, this whole issue of climate and energy policy is not being discussed in Europe, right? There is no discussion. There is a consensus and everyone agrees. Anyone 
trying to raise questions like, you know, think tanks, um, they will not be heard. They will not be heard. So there is no debate. And as we know, in a society where there is no debate, there is no ability to self-correct. So currently, I don't see any even kind of institutional mechanism to self-correct. The other problem is that you have the EU, um, where even while we know there are a few Eastern European countries that are reluctant to go along, the EU essentially tells them, look, if you don't follow what we're telling you to do, we won't pay you. So even countries that are reluctant out of self-interest and security interest cannot actually break free from the consensus because they would be punished immediately, financially, politically, by the EU. So um, it's different in the US because you have states, and states have a certain limit of flexibility and, and a certain level on energy policy kind of uh, independence in what they can do, more than you can do probably in Europe. Um, but I don't see any chance of a real um, breaking of the consensus, not in the near future, not this generation of policymakers, because they've been brought up in the last 30 years from kindergarten to school to university to the BBC to theaters to all institutions, all cultural institutions, that this is the right way. And so when you talk to the ordinary person, they will say, well, the, pro the, the whole crisis is we haven't built enough wind farms. Mm. That is the problem. If we only had yeah. more wind farms, we would not have yeah. that problem. Uh, no. Yeah. yeah, yeah, great, great comment, sir. And as Penny pointed out, you do have this almost universal consensus in, in Europe uh, in favor of you know, a big government energy approach here. And uh, um, it's, it's a very sad uh, sight to see. And uh, also uh, equally sad is uh, the United States now embracing a lot of this uh, agenda, actually. And Joe Biden is, is a quintessential EU-style bureaucrat, really. Uh, he is uh, the, um, the American uh, uh, equivalent uh, of a European uh, Commission official or, or sort of Emmanuel Macron-like like figure. And um, someone online was asking a question about, is there any hope right now with the present administration, or do we have to wait till the Republicans come in? I think without a doubt there's, there's no hope with this administration in place now. It, it's an absolute... Uh, disaster, frankly, uh, and uh, the, the Biden administration is the you know, the enemy of, of economic freedom on so many on so many fronts. Um, but one one glimmer of hope for the United Kingdom, I think, um, and this is why I think the sort of political elites fear it. This idea of a referendum on net zero really does frighten and scare. The, the political uh, elites, uh, in the same way that the idea of uh, of a vote on Brexit as well was very frightening, of course, to elites across across Europe. And and I I suspect that if a referendum were to be held on net zero, the British public would probably reject it, bearing in mind the tremendous costs. This could be a very big game changer if a referendum were to be held. I, I do not believe that Rishi Sunak would agree to one, but. If, uh, if Boris Johnson returned as prime minister, 
God help us. Um, <laughs> Boris, of course, on, on green energy policy and so on, uh, we would be very critical of where Boris is. But uh, no, Boris, he, I think, um, is more in, in tune, actually, uh, with where... He used where, to be very sensible. Yeah. If you look at his old <coughs> Telegraph columns, yeah. he was very, very sensible. Yeah, yeah. Issue. I think Boris, though, he understands often where public sentiment lies. And you've got a general election coming up the end of 2024 or by January 2025 at the latest. Uh, Boris Johnson, I think, would be far more open to the idea of, of a referendum. And uh, do the British people want to pay £1.4 trillion for an insane net zero policy? I don't think so. And they also uh, don't I, want to see their electricity bills. Yeah, so. I, I think there would be a significant majority against this. Uh, and uh, the political elites will fight tooth and nail against the idea of a referendum. It's gaining ground, though. The YouGov poll is a big, uh, is a big uh, I would say, new catalyst, actually, in support of the idea of a referendum. So we'll see what happens on that, on that front. Let's go to the next online question. Is it possible that there is a national security reason for the push to get the public off fossil fuels? In other words, would America and Britain be more secure if we did not use fossil fuels, is the audience question from online. So that is a very good question because you wonder why the Europeans started this whole green agenda in the first place, mm -hmm. given the mess Europe is in, given the cost issue, the security issue. Now, the situation in Europe in the 80s and 90s when this agenda emerged, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union as well, there was a gap in the ideological market. But the real, let's say, um, interest of Europeans, they realized that they were running low on fossil fuels compared to you know, the Middle East or the US. There was not much gas left. There is still about 50 years gas. If you really were to start drilling, you could still get a lot out of the ground. Coal in particular, at least 300 years of coal in Europe. But the realization was that it was a disadvantage for Europe to import so much fossil fuels from the rest of the world. And the idea, and that was the kind of the pipe dream, was that Europe becomes the green energy superpower of the world, first by introducing all these laws against you know, using fossil fuels and so on, and laws to make everything green technology, then you actually become the big superpower of wind turbines and solar panels, and you sell it to the rest of the world. That was the idea. Europe becoming the green superpower, the three, they called it the third um, industrial revolution, mm -hmm. and they would dominate the green technologies. Yes, that was the idea. Wasn't there a Scandinavian company called Vesta or something like that? Oh, yeah, they, they are turbines. still there. The, the only problem is they forgot a country starts with C, I think. And um, they, they realized that they can do it for half the price. So instead of selling all of this to the rest of the world, we, Europe got swamped with Chinese wind turbines and, and solar panels. So the whole idea of becoming the green superpower turned into becoming a basically a green dump uh, for, for Chinese cheap products and causing these problems. The real problem is that renewables are unreliable, they are not uh, cheap, and they are causing all these unintended consequences. 
like the intermittency and the look if you are if you want to build a power plant in Europe no investor is currently building a power plant in Europe without a guarantee from the government that they have to subsidize it for 30 years because it n makes no more sense in Europe to build a conventional coal, gas, or nuclear power plant. It doesn't make sense. The only power plants or power systems that are being built in Europe is mainly renewables or anything that is subsidized. You, so basically, we already have energy socialism. There is no free market. There is absolutely no free market. In a free market where you would have competition and investors would take risks, no one is taking any risk. And that's partly because the, the governments in Europe have prioritized, they've picked, we, we call it picking losers. Basically, they've picked the energy system they think would deliver their utopia, and instead they get dystopia. Niall, do you have any? Um, actually, I, um, I think Bernie's covered this, this very well. I'll just say one, one thing, though, actually, about um, a big sort of further threat on the horizon, and quite a grim discussion today, but, but I think one of them is this idea of climate change reparations and this this idea mm. that is that is now gaining ground and Joe Biden has latched onto this and and basically is committing the United States to climate change reparations uh, fortunately the the British government actually uh, reversed course on this Rishi Sunak initially indicated that he would back climate change reparations for uh, for developing countries, uh, even actually uh, China apparently could benefit from climate change mm. repar reparations. Uh, but significantly, actually, uh, going back to Boris Johnson, Boris actually intervened publicly to pose this idea, saying it was crazy, and and Rishi backtracked on it. So, uh, you know, I think there is a difference between um, uh, a present sort of Rishi Sunak administration and potentially uh, a future... Uh, that's what he said yesterday. Tomorrow uh, he might say the opposite. Let's, let's <laughs> no, no I, I, I think there is, there is a the difference between Boris Johnson and Richard Over Sunday. here. Yeah. Uh, Francis Menton, Manhattan contrarian, and I'm also the president of the American Friends of Global Warming Policy Foundation. Yeah, and can you tell us your name? We didn't catch you. Francis okay, Menton. Okay, Francis Menton, yeah. Um, I wanted to follow up on the... Uh, referendum question because you said two-thirds of the people who have an opinion want to have a referendum in the UK but is there any polling on the question of how it would come out if they voted does does the fact that you want to have a referendum mean that you're going to vote against net zero and then if there was a referendum and the referendum approved net zero what then are you is in, in, in the U.S., when you have a referendum on something like California, it becomes part of the Constitution, and then it can't be changed without another referendum. Yeah. Would, would you be stuck with it forever if the referendum went the wrong way? Well, I, I think the situation at the moment is that the U.K. is committed to uh, a net-zero strategy for 2050. Uh, there's been no real public debate on this issue. Uh, and the public really has not had an opportunity to weigh in directly on, on the matter. Uh, so uh, I would argue there's, there's a very strong case for a, a wider public debate. And if you had a similar
debate to the one you had over Brexit over the course of, 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 of many months ahead of the referendum, uh, I think it would be very beneficial for the British people to see the pros and cons here. Uh, and uh, I, I suspect that uh, the polls would shift significantly. Uh, it would be tight, no doubt about it, but I think the polls would start to shift away from net zero if the public understood the full costs here. Uh, and needless to say, I don't think there's been a great deal of transparency or an effort by the British government to explain the broader costs here. You can find the figures if you want to, but, but the British government uh, has not really explained to the British people clearly how much it's going to cost them uh, over the course of the next uh, quarter, quarter century. This is such a hugely important issue, I think, for the British public that it deserves a, a referendum uh, vote. Right, yeah, uh, and there's, and, a, there's, yeah. A, there's a follow-up. Well, there's a question here that links yeah. to what you're saying. Do Americans understand that Europe and UK in particular are committed to decarbonize their economies by about 80% by 2050 and consequently are committing economic harikari? Yeah, I, I'd agree. I mean, it, it is, uh, it is uh, harikari, basically, for um, the British and European uh, economists. And a lot of it is, is driven by uh, sheer uh, ideology rather than a clear assessment of, rea of reality here. And I think net zero has become uh, basically a form of religion. Uh, and uh, anyone who questions the uh, sort of the dogma on this immediately is accused of being a heretic. And so uh, this is a very dangerous uh, way forward. And there should be open, robust debate on the way forward. There really has not been uh, so far. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think the more votes we have on this uh, across Europe, uh, uh, the better. And uh, th there's a reason why uh, EU elites, for example, oppose uh, referenda in their own countries on EU membership, because they fear they will lose. Yeah, yeah, and, and, re yes. yeah. and really the, the only way to achieve net zero with... Uh, uh, normal levels, what we are used to normal levels of economic growth is nuclear power, which is zero emissions. But the people who are in favor of net zero tend to be against nuclear power, which is very puzzling to me. Yeah. In fact, we published a paper showing that if, if you really want to decarbonize the economy in, the, in a gradual evolutionary way, the best and cheapest way is a gas to nuclear pathway. Um, if we had continued that, which in the UK started in the 90s, instead of going for renewables, we would have less. Sorry. Sorry. It's okay. Do we have any, uh, any more audience questions, or shall I go to another online question? Please, uh, in the back, please Hi, tell us morning. who you Thank are. Thank you very much for your feedback. Um, I'm Andrew Mullen from PAX International. Couple part question. Um, in the US, we subsidize fossil fuel uh, businesses. In England, do we do that as well? Is one question. Two, we talked about um, expanding the base uh, to make of energy, so to make the energy prices more fair. Today, I believe OPEC, Iran, Venezuela have a significant role in the cost of energy, including Russia. Um, how do you feel about that dependence on these countries determining the price? Um, and thirdly, would you believe that a rounded approach, including green energy, nuclear, coal, um, and other energy sources is the right way? Last thing, how do you feel about Turkey maintaining a relatively 
low increase in energy prices compared to Europe, Turkey and the other countries that have not suffered as much as Europe, what do you attribute that low um, increase compared to Europe? What was the first question? Uh, I, I'm sorry, um, there were multiple yeah. questions. I, I, but I'm going to take the first question. Uh, okay. So the first question was about subsidies for fossil fuel industries here in the United States. And for uh, large companies, uh, the subsidies no more than for other large manufacturing companies, the domestic production credit. So just as if you're a pharmaceutical company and you do research into a drug and it doesn't work, you can still write off uh, the cost of doing research into that drug. If you're an oil company and you drill a dry well, you can write off the cost of that, that dry well. So these credits are not out of line with other manufacturing. They're just tweaked for the particular uh, business of uh, oil and natural gas production. Now, uh, there are many questions that you've asked. I suggest that you each briefly pick one of his questions and answer them, and then we'll move on to another online I'll, question. I'll uh, answer the question about, you know, the kind of all of the above kind of policy. You know, you, the problem is uh, quite simple. If you do not subsidize renewables, no one would use them. No one is going to build a wind farm without subsidies. If, if you leave it to the market, everyone would build the cheapest form of energy generation. And renewables are not among them. So renewables can only survive and thrive where governments hand out these astronomical sums of subsidies. But the problem is once you do that, everyone else suffers and will say, well, we won't build you a, you know, a gas-fired power plant or a nuclear power plant if you don't subsidize us as well. So everyone then asks for handouts. That distorts the whole idea of a, of a level playing field or, or, or market, and that creates the problems we're facing in Europe. Okay, that's good in that. Yeah, actually, just a um, response to uh, an issue that gentleman raised uh, about... Um, energy dependence on other countries, uh, and I think you mentioned Venezuela as, as, as one of them. And so the Biden administration has been talking about the idea of, of purchasing oil from, from Venezuela, I believe. Uh, and uh, it is absolutely extraordinary that you have an oil-rich country like the United States um, that is being uh, forced into a position of dependency upon other, other countries, and I have to say, dependency upon nefarious, uh, brutally evil actors as well on the world stage, like Venezuela, for example. And this is where the Biden administration's um, destructive approach, undermining US uh, energy production at home, is uh, forcing compromises on, on the world stage. And I suspect the desire to revive the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, is actually part and parcel of this uh, thinking as well on the part of uh, of the Biden presidency is dangerous. Uh, it enhances the power of dictatorial and dangerous uh, regimes that threaten uh, the free world. Uh, and it's the kind of thinking uh, that has existed in Europe for, for many decades that has placed Europe in the position it is today. And even as we speak, you have uh, German and French uh, uh, companies uh, lobbying their governments uh, to uh, negotiate a deal with uh, or support a, a negotiated settlement with the Russians over Ukraine in order to get back to business as usual. Uh, and uh, and I, I think this entire approach is so fundamentally destructive. Uh, but this appeasement mindset exists in continental Europe. 
It exists in Brussels, Paris, and Berlin. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, I think, is a strong advocate of this, this point of view. He just wants French companies to get back to doing business with the Russians. And in the United States, you have the same mindset here, unfortunately, in terms of doing deals with uh, Venezuela, Iran, and also many in the Biden administration uh, support uh, getting back to talks with Putin over, over Ukraine. And, and it's, this, it's this appeasement mindset that is, is so uh, fundamentally, I think, dangerous for the free world, but it's very real. Uh, and, and I think you've, uh, you alluded to that in your, your question earlier. Let's have the last question from online. Here's the question. With China, India, and other developing Asian nations pursuing expansion of their economies facilitated through cheap coal-based power, what is the real benefit of the West's virtue signaling by chasing the decarbonization agenda? Yeah, well, uh, I remember giving evidence to a Senate hearing here uh, some years back, and I was saying, look, as long as these policies are unilateral, as long as you do this uh, on your own, this is not going to address your main concern, which is CO2 emissions, because the rest of the world will not follow. And the rest of the world will definitely not follow Europe's green experiment, which is going so badly. No one wants to do what the Europeans are doing because they can see the damage we are doing to ourselves. So unless there is, and, and this is the whole thing, unless you have come up with some kind of energy policy that is attractive to other countries, particularly poorer countries, they will not you know, follow your lead. And this is the problem. We are in Europe essentially um, degrading our own economies uh, and our own nations in the name of saving the planet without actually doing anything about CO2 emissions because we're only shifting them abroad. We're just exporting them. And that is at the core of all these, you know, 27 COPs we've seen over the last 30 years. It's always the same. It's always the same outcome. The developing world, China, India, are not going to uh, risk their own uh, economies, the well-being of their peoples, their energy security, their national security. We are doing it, and we are paying the price for it. And this is the biggest warning to Americans. Uh, you know, if you want to avoid your energy bills going up by fourfold, don't do what we're doing. Niall, I'm going to leave it to you to provide an answer to this and also to sum up, because we have a yeah. Two or three more minutes, um, Yeah, just, just in, in summary, um, I do think that Europe offers a sort of nightmare vision of the future for the United States on, on the energy front. And uh, I think Europe, US politicians should look very closely at what is happening in, in Europe. And it's unfortunate, I think, you have a US administration in place that thinks in the same way as a lot of the, uh, the European uh, leadership on, on so many uh, uh, matters. And uh, it's, it's vital for the new uh, Republican-controlled House of Representatives to take a close look at what is happening across the Atlantic to learn the lessons of, of what has happened there and to be very robust in terms of their policy p positioning and thinking here. And also, the same applies to uh, presidential contenders for 2024. They should look very carefully at the, the European experiment, and I describe it as a, as a 
uh, as, a, as a complete disaster on so many uh, fronts with regard to the energy uh, crisis. Uh, and um, uh, there are major lessons to be learned. Uh, I, I think uh, Benny has done a superb job in outlining uh, the scale of the, the crisis across the, across the Atlantic. And uh, it is very important for our US leadership right now, but also future leadership as well, uh, to be uh, learning the lessons. If you apply big government uh, solutions, if you undermine economic freedom, uh, and if you pursue policies that are outright, frankly, socialist in, in ideology, uh, this is the path to, uh, to economic ruin. It's going to reduce prosperity. Attacks on economic freedom reduce the prosperity of free, of free nations. And this is what we're seeing right now uh, in Europe. Well, I want to thank both of you for coming. Why don't we give our panelists a big hand? I want to thank those of you who uh, came in person. I want to thank the 400 people who are watching online. And our next event in January is going to feature Chris Wright, who's CEO of Liberty Energy in Denver. And he's going to tell us about possibilities for production here in the United States. So I hope you will also join us in January, and you're going to get an invitation to that. So thanks very much.